about in, in uh, understanding the way that the church fell away or some of the things that happened during this falling away process. But here's uh, the thing we, we need to always keep in mind. When Paul was talking about the falling away that must happen, when he was asked by the brethren if uh, uh, about the imminent return of the Lord, he said there must first be a falling away. Now, brethren, he wasn't talking about the Catholic Church. There was a falling away that had to do with Gnosticism. Now, I believe that the Catholic Church grew out of that movement of Gnosticism, okay? And then, uh, as we've talked about the different ways that they began to change the organization of the church, the structure of the leadership, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the main purpose of that was, and it may have been with this mindset of fighting that Gnosticism at the time, and maybe we need to put our best and brightest forward, and so man came up with the idea saying, well, this individual, uh, this particular elder here, or this particular bishop, maybe he's the one to kind of unite behind and all of the congregations that were fighting against this. I don't know that that's what it was, but I've always kind of felt that in some way man's uh, intention of helping God with a problem has always turned out to where it wasn't exactly what they had expected. And we see that down through the history of the Bible. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> so let's keep that in mind as we continue to look at some of these things that happen. So we've talked about the organization of the church, the structure of the leadership. We've talked about some problems that came about uh, regarding baptism. Now let's talk for a few moments about some of the departures regarding the Lord's Supper. Okay? <clears throat> there were no serious controversies regarding the Lord's Supper until the early part of the ninth century, okay? That would have been the 800s, okay? That would have been the ninth century. So now we're, we are removed 800 and something years <clears throat> from, uh, you know, or about 800 years from, from the time of Christ's death before we had any real controversy surrounding the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, uh, when uh, Cassius Radbert, and he was described as a monk of acuteness of mind, he wrote a book in the 800s, okay? And he introduced the doctrine of transubstantiation. That's a big, long word. And uh, uh, the Catholic Church today holds to the idea of transubstantiation. Now, what does that mean? The emblems used for the Lord's Supper. Of course, uh, the Catholic Church and a lot of different other denominations use different emblems than what is prescribed in the New Testament. They may use unleavened bread, but they may use alcoholic wine or... Or whatever. But anyway, uh, transubstantiation means when you pray over these emblems and you eat that emblem, that it becomes the actual body and blood of Christ. Not just the part you, you broke off and ate. Whatever's left in the tray. That's why you can't just throw it in the garbage. Right? Because it's the actual body and blood of Christ. Now this is what this monk in the 800s, 
uh, the early part of the 800s, the ninth century, what he taught and what he introduced. Now, notice some of the things he stated. <clears throat> he took the position, the wine in the Lord's Supper is the very blood that ran out of the Savior's side upon the cross. And for that reason, water is mingled with the Eucharistical wine. Okay, so not only did they say, okay, this is the very blood, but to make it what the Bible says, we're going to have to add some water to it. Now, who, where do we find that passage? It's not there, is it? And so what we're seeing is you get off track a little bit. You know, you get off track a little bit in, in uh, the second century, and by the time you get to the eighth century, you're way over here, aren't you? That's just what, one way or the other, whether to the left or to the right. He also said, uh, the bread is the very flesh of our Savior, which was born of the virgin. Do you think there were any problems with this when he first brought this about, when he first introduced this? Oh, man. It was very distasteful, to say the least, right? To teach a doctrine that says you're drinking the blood, you're eating the flesh. Now, let's go back to the first century. The Romans, one of their evidences for persecuting the church was that they were what? Cannibals. They were cannibals. Why? Because of the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body, this is my blood, right? Obviously, a figurative statement. Not the real body, not the real blood, but a figure of that, right? Representing something. Used as a memorial to remind us the... Uh, the, the juice is, is not the blood of Jesus. It just simply figures or represents for us what we need to be thinking about, right? God understands that people sometimes need visual aids, right? We need to be able to think about it, to see it, and to concentrate on it, right? And so that was one of the problems in the first century and Rome used that to say, hey, let's persecute these cannibalistic, quote, uh, Christians, they call themselves, the people of the way, right? And so that was, that was one of the problems. So, uh, most of the people rejected it. Okay? Most people rejected it. But as we look at, uh, the way things happen over time, when the, <clears throat> when the, the, uh, uh, problem of the instrument, right? Back in the, the, the earlier part of the last century, began to kind of rear its head. What did most people do? They rejected it, right? But what happens over time? You keep presenting something. You keep presenting something. Well, you know, you kind of get used to it, right? You kind of get used to it. And, uh, you know, it's just like anything else. A new product comes on the market, right? And people are, I don't know so much. And they just keep seeing it around, keep seeing it around. They get kind of used to looking at it and to seeing it, it being advertised. And then eventually, you might even try it, right? And if you try it, you might find that you like it. And so that's kind of what was happening here, this doctrine floating around, floating around, floating around. And do we see the results of, uh, of things like that happening in the church today? Well, of course we do. Of course we do. You know, we have 
the Lord's Supper taken on a Saturday. We have the instrument. We have sisters leading, uh, erring sisters leading in the worship assembly of apostate congregations. And uh, uh, but at the time this was uh, written, the monks favored it. One of their own came up with it, right? And because of the materialistic uh, viewpoint of the Europeans, it finally was embraced. And it's all based in materialism, isn't it? It's all based in materialism. What's premillennialism based in? Materialism. They like living in this present world, much like Demas. What is this based in? Well, we can't let it be a representation or a figure. It has to be the real thing. It has to be something we can touch and feel and, you know. So it's all materialism. But that's how Satan operates in this world, isn't it? He wants us to place the spiritual or replace the spiritual with the materialistic. So now we've got this doctrine floating around that says when we partake of this, uh, these emblems, they become the real blood and the real body of Jesus. Any comments? Questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. And Sam says when he was in college, and, and, and I, took a, uh, I took an introductory anthropology class myself. I, don't, uh, I didn't go into it as deep as what Sam did, but they called the communion a ritualistic cannibalism, right? Because Jesus said, uh, this is my body. My... Didn't he also say, I'm the vine? Didn't he say, I'm the door? You know, who, who's going to say, well, he was a literal door, literal vine, right? But people will take what they want to take and massage it a little bit and turn it into something they want it to turn it into. Good comment. You're not to eat blood, absolutely. You're not to eat blood. Why? Because the life is in the blood, right? <clears throat> and so, and that's a good point Rem makes there. Uh, uh, you know, that, that's a, uh, not only is it ridiculous, right? What would, what would it take to turn this wine through the vine into a blood. It would take the same process that Jesus used to, to turn water into grape juice, right? It would take a miracle, in fact. It would take a miracle. <coughs> of course, that's not a problem when we look at the, the Catholic Church. You know, it's not an issue, a problem, because, you know, they've got that going on all the time in their doctrine, right? They claim that miracles have never ceased, to be sainted, you have to, you know, have to witness a miracle. You have to either perform one or witness one, right? If you ask the Pope if he could perform a miracle, what would he say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm the vicar of Christ on earth. And so, uh, you know, so that, that's not an issue. Now, this controversy didn't just stop in the 800s. It raged and raged for 400 years. We get over into the 13th century, 1215, uh, when Pope Innocent III assembled a council in Rome in uh, the Lateran Church, which consisted of 412 of these bishops. Now remember how the bishops came about. And he read 70 canons which he had drawn up. Now what's the canon? We talk about, and uh, you know, we talk about inspiration. We talk about revelation. We talk about the canon, the canon of the Bible, or those books 
that we have in the Bible and we talk about how we know they're supposed to be there. So canon is really, I think the word means, and uh, Preston may remember this a little better than me, I think the word means something similar to a ruler. Measure, right? The canon of the Bible is what we measure our lives with. And so, Innocent Third came up with 70 canons, 70 items that he said was Scripture. Now, for something to be from God, what must it be? You must have an individual who is inspired. That person reveals through revelation to people who hear. So Innocent Third says, I am inspired and I am writing out this canon. I don't even know that he would necessarily say he was inspired. He just simply taken the place of God. At any rate, he wrote out these 70 um, canons he had drawn up. And among those 70 was the famous canon that gave transubstantiation a legal place in the Catholic Church. So it started out in the, in the 800s, 400 years later, this idea of transubstantiation. This book that the monk wrote. No, this doctrine of uh, transubstantiation. This monk wrote in, in the early part of the 9th century. And then we get to the early part of the 13th century. Now it's, it's a legal uh, belief. It's a part of their rituals and their rites. Okay? I want us to notice what he wrote. He made the statement saying, There's one universal church of the faithful, out of which no one at all is saved, I'll go along with that. And in which Jesus Christ himself is at once priest and sacrificed. I think we'd agree with that, wouldn't we? Whose body and blood in the sacrament of the altar are truly constrained under the species of bread and wine, which through the divine power are transubstantiated. They're changed, right? The bread into body and the wine into the blood that for the fulfillment of the mystery of unity we may receive of that which received of ours. Well, then we kind of start to disagree, right? There's one church, there's one Lord, there's one sacrifice, there's one high priest, and then you get off on this other stuff that's ridiculous, been percolating for 400 years. And now it's a law in this uh, denomination. Now, the evolution of this blasphemy continued. And then we get over to... Uh, the Council of Trent, and uh, here's what they claim. There is therefore no reason to doubt but that all Christ's faithful people in their veneration should render this most holy sacrament the same worship which is due to the true God according to the custom which the Catholic Church has always received. So what's, that, what's he saying? If this is the real blood, and that's the real body, we are to owe it the same worship that we do God when we come together. Because that's who, that's who it is, right? That's God. That's pieces of Him. Now, how much sense does that make? It goes from a statement that maybe was uh, uh, came up with by the Roman government in the first century. Someone sat around and said, you know, this is one of their practices. I think we might twist this a little bit and be able to use it against them understanding, anyone with any common sense understanding, that's a figurative statement, right? People have been writing 
uh, speaking in figurative statements since almost the beginning of time, I'm sure. And so, and then on down through the years, 1,200 years later, what do we have? We have someone who has said, now we need to worship the wine and the bread because once we pray over it, it is transubstantiated, it is changed into the actual body and blood of our Savior and it is due worship. That doesn't even make sense if that was the case. If someone, you know, if Christ had injured himself in his, uh, uh, through the process of his livelihood, do you think he ever mashed a finger or cut a finger while he was chiseling out stone? Now we know he never broke any bones, right? Was that substance that came from his finger something worthy of worship? That's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around, right? He is worthy of worship. I don't know that when his side was pierced on the cross that John and his mother and his aunt and those other people who were around there who believed in him and worshipped him, I don't think they were worshipping that blood that was coming out of his side. I think they were worshipping the man who gave his blood so the world could be saved. Just It, it, it just snowballs into ridiculousness, doesn't it? Any comments, questions? Yeah, Brother Joe. Absolutely. <clears throat> Idolatry. Joe hit the nail on the head. We can't just drink some grape juice. It's a representation, right, of what Jesus did for to help bring into our remembrance. It's a figure. We can't just do that. We've got to turn it into something that's, quote, real, right? We can't just worship the unseen God. We have to have something to look at. And it's out of worship. It's materialism, isn't it? It's materialism. I think we can almost carry every single false doctrine back to this concept of materialism. Good comment. Anything else? Why, sure, sure. So, here's what they've done. It's a figurative statement, right? But if someone were to say, hey, give me some, before you burn that, let's look at it, let's investigate it. Now, all of a sudden, it's a figure again. It's a figurative statement, right? So, you can't have both of them. You have one or it's either real or it's not, you know. And again, that's why they don't just dump it in the trash. What do we do? We got some of this left over. Goes right in the garbage, doesn't it? Why? Because it's bread, it's a cracker, and it's grape juice. As it sits right now. When we engage in the worship of a memorial to honor what Christ did for us, we take that bread and eat it, and we, we concentrate and we focus on what He did, and that is just an aid to doing that, right? It's an act of worship. I'm not taking anything away from it. But as it sits right now, uh, who, who likes grape juice? Man, I love it. One of my favorites. Especially the red grape juice. By the way, shouldn't we use red grape juice? Isn't that a little closer to the color of, of blood? You know. Uh, every time I drink grape juice, I'm not worshiping God by means of the Lord's Supper. Right? As it sits right now, what did David do when he found himself starving? He ate the showbread. He ate the showbread, 
right? It's a cracker. Who likes uh, who likes the stuff that uh, Margaret makes? Man, that's my favorite. My favorite. I love it. Anyway, uh, but that's right. Any other comments? Yeah. Uh, they the when when they first introduced this, uh, that's what he suggested. Now, when it came to twelve fifteen or whatever, were they still adding water to it to mix it up? Is the question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I I don't think they do it today for sure. You know, I don't think they, you know, they don't want to dilute the liquor. You know, you don't want to dilute the liquor. Hey, man. My, my, hey, you know what? May have been, but I think that, that that predates the holy water, though. The priest is who, have you ever now started to say, have you ever noticed during Mass they'll go by and they'll give everybody the little wafer and he'll take a shot when the time you get to the end, you know. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. Oh yeah, that's that's you know that that goblet or beer mug, whatever it is, must represent the holy grail that Christ drank from. It's idolatry, isn't it, brother Joe? Idolatry. Really? Yeah, I knock them off. I, I regularly get that mess on me because I'm a little clumsy and I just knock it right off on the floor. Yeah, it's a, it's a representation. It's a figure. It's something to bring to our remembrance to help us focus on what we're doing, right? And uh, uh, that's all it is. That doesn't mean it's not a holy right that God instituted. But we need to understand it for what it is. It's not the actual body and blood of Jesus. That's one of the more, to me, one of the more controversial uh, dogmas that they present and teach. Any other comments? There's no difference. No difference. Zero difference. Well, you know, it's the same thing as putting him on a cross. You know, you walk into any Catholic temple, and, and I visit them. I, I really enjoy the architecture. And if we're, you know, in our travels, if we're in a larger city, we'll try to find the the Catholic uh, temple because of, you know, because it's they're usually hundreds of years old and and they're beautiful. And but that's one of the first things you see when you walk in, isn't it? You see, uh, among other things, you see. A depiction of Christ on the cross. It's this European-looking anemic fella hanging there who looks like a diaper on, right? And it's just blasphemous is what it is, blasphemous. Uh, but uh, you'll see depictions of Peter, obviously, and the other apostles. Brother Joe. Yes. Figuratively speaking, exactly. He is 
participating with us, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, we have to we have to understand everything within the proper context. You can you can prove any crazy doctrine or dogma, you name it. You can prove it from the Bible if you want to take a single verse and pull it out of context and just ignore what came before it, what came after it, right? That's how we got this idea, uh, I say we, the world, got this idea of baptizing people, being baptized for people who have died. Mormon church does that. They weren't the first ones to do it. Paul talked about them uh, when he made that statement, right? Ah, Good comment. Anything else? All right, we have just a few minutes here. If, if someone had to pick out, if someone asked you, pick out an activity that is universally recognized as something the Catholic Church does. Confession, right? How does that operate? <laughs> you go in a little room, pull back the curtain, and you have this... Uh, like a mesh separating uh, lace looking thing and you're speaking quietly into the ear of a priest and what are you confessing all the wrongs in your life in detail okay the confessional uh, I think as we look at this observance of the mass and uh I believe uh, that's the common combination and culmination of Roman doctrine. The confessional, I think, is the chief of the papal system. It is the confessional that the Pope uses through his hierarchy to keep an uh, iron grip on the people of the Catholic Church. What does the individual not want that priest going out and telling everybody? what you just told him, right? That's a heavy burden hanging over your head, isn't it? If you can keep someone in check, do, do, do any of us have anything, anything in our histories that we'd like to remain there? That we don't want to drag forward and just stand up right now and start talking about it? I think everybody does, right? And where do they need to stay? They stay right back there where we stopped doing it, right? Right back there where we recognized and we owned up to the fact that we were doing wrong and we're not going to do it anymore. And it needs to stay right back there where it was because God's forgiven us and we don't need to be airing our dirty laundry around, do we? Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes we don't make a public confession. The confessional and confession are two different things, okay? Uh by this confessional, by this papal system, uh, the decrees of the, quote, infallible church are applied and carried out with unequal measure of focus and rigor. It is used to keep the masses in line with the doctrines propagated from the Catholic Church. Uh, the fact that the New Testament requires confession of sin is not and should never be denied. But what's the difference? 
Hmm? We, we, if necessary. The confessional is you're going in and you have a priest. <coughs> and that priest may be a young man. Not that it matters. At any rate, he's an unmarried man, isn't he? And you're uh, delivering to him all kinds of sometimes dark secrets that is not any of his business. So the secret confession in the ear of the priest to secure his absolution, and that's another key point, his absolution, he absolves the person from that sin, was entirely unknown in the early church. Even in Rome, it was not known until about the year 390. Okay? Uh, the late 4th century. It was then where a place was appointed, and it wasn't known in the, in the way it is done now. There was a place appointed for the reception of those who were penitent. Okay? What it was, they... Uh, they separated those, the, 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 the sinners who showed up, separated them from the rest of the faithful, and they stood over in a corner somewhere or back there during this public worship session and mourned and cried and begged and pleaded. Sincerely. That reminds me a little bit of what Paul did before he became Paul, right? For three days he fasted, he cried, he prayed, he mourned. He was penitent. What good did that do him? Was he still lost? He was still lost. Okay? Uh, he needed to do those things, but he was still lost at that time. And then they would drag those people in, bring them up there to where the priest was. They would throw themselves down in front of him. He, they would moan and cry and beg. And then the bishop who conducted the ceremony would get down beside them, prostrate himself with the people. And upon his getting up and rising, he would absolve them of the sins in which they had uh, been guilty of and would pray. Now, how's that sound? I don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. I don't read about that in the Old Testament. I don't read God ever making a statement like that and requiring anything like that. Does God require godly sorrow? Absolutely. Does He require repentance? Absolutely. Does He require confession? Absolutely He does. But He does not require a show to be put on and then for someone who's usurped the throne of God to come down and say, I absolve you from your sin. If someone sins against us and, and they ask forgiveness, we forgive them, but who absolves them from their sin? God does. God forgives sin, not humanity. Any comments, questions? Brother. The Crossroads Movement or the Boston Movement? Absolutely. And what Preston's talking about, and we'll close on this, in the 70s, and we'll talk about it a little more next time, uh, the Crossroads Movement or the Boston Movement, where they had prayer partners, it turned into exactly that, didn't it, Preston? And uh, that resulted in all kinds of problems. But we should have, or 
They should have known that because it resulted in all kinds of problems in the Catholic Church as well. It's a good point. We'll pick up with that next time. Thank you so much.